as we're coming up upon um, Thanksgiving, which is my favorite holiday of the year, I cannot think of a better passage to preach than the one that we're in this morning. Uh, this morning, we get to see what Jesus was willing to go through in order to show us his love and to reconcile us uh, to his Father. Uh, and so knowing that should lead, it should fill our hearts with gratitude. So our passage today comes from John 19. John's purpose in writing this gospel, uh, which includes the details of the crucifixion, is to help the reader believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's his aim. That's his goal. It's his purpose in writing. He's writing about the crucifixion so that you may believe. For those of you who already believe, which I know is most of you, I pray this passage will encourage you to believe even deeper. For those of you who come in this morning that are maybe doubting, maybe you're not quite sure who Jesus is, and I pray this passage will open up your eyes and bring you true life. So let's start reading in verse 16 of chapter 19. John writes, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was, in, it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. For this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciples, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples the disciple took her, her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial customs of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray together. Father God, you are incredibly uh, marvelous and wonderful and gracious and kind to give us your very best. God, you sent Jesus, your one and only Son, to die on behalf of man so that we can have fellowship with you. So Lord, for those of us who have heard this story countless of times, I pray that it would be, uh, it would be fresh for us today. That we would be moved by uh, uh, the truth of the cross. Uh, Lord, for those that are still uh, maybe searching, trying to figure out who this Jesus is, I pray that they would see that there's still room at the cross for them. Uh, so, Lord, may we uh, come this morning just humbled by what you do for us. Uh, even when we're so uh, uh, oftentimes uh, faithless, you, are, you remain faithful. So, Lord, help us to see uh, just how you're working our lives today. Help us to leave uh, trusting you more than what we did when we came in the room. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to think for a moment about the disciples, just how confusing the past 12 hours has been for them. Um, you know, John's gospel covers three years of Jesus walking with these men. Starting all the way back in chapter 1, we see the disciples meeting Jesus, at least some of the disciples meeting Jesus. Uh, John, um, in chapter 1, um, we see in verse 35, um, it says, the next day again, John, this is um, John the witness, says John the Baptist, who's a witness, uh, was standing with two, his two disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, earlier he said, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he sees him again, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, which is huge. They, you know, they, they're disciples of John. They leave John, start following Jesus. Jesus turns, sees them following, says, you know, what, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, 
Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard um, John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. If you drop down a few verses of verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I want you to think about these disciples. Think about Nathaniel hearing these words from Jesus, thinking, oh, man, like we're going to see greater things than, than this. We're going to see angels ascending, descending. There's this big mission, this plan, and Jesus began to unfold that plan over, over you know, the next three years, and now you fast forward, Jesus on the cross. I just wonder if Nathaniel's going, where were the angels ascending, descending? What, what was all of that about Jesus? I'm sure they were really confused. All the way back, if you think of the very beginning of the story, you know, after the rebellion in the garden, God had promised to send a Savior. God promised a king who would bring salvation. But then Jesus arrives, supposedly as Savior, Deliverer, Ruler, and he ends up being executed as a criminal. So if Jesus was this coming Messiah, why then was he crucified between two criminals? I mean, you, you can see how this would be confusing for these disciples. So let's walk through this um, crucifixion account from John's Gospel. And let's see how John explains this. So let's pick up in verse 16. John says that Jesus is delivered over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus and he, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Crucifixion was a cruel and embarrassing death. It was meant to ridicule the criminal. The cause of death for someone being crucified was suffocation. In order to avoid, um, you had to push yourself up so the nails in his leg were used to help push himself up so he could keep breathing. You'd pull yourself up with your arms, but by doing this, you would create muscle spasms that would cause almost unbearable pain. And as awful as the physical torture of the cross would have been for Jesus, the real suffering for him would have been experiencing the wrath of God in the place for sinners like us. 
And it was normal for criminals to carry their own cross. The other two probably did. Jesus at least started out carrying his own cross, but most likely because of the severity of his floggings that he had received. Luke's gospel says that a man named Simon helped carry um, Jesus' cross. Now, John mentions that the location of the crucifixion was a place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. We, we, we don't really know why um, it's called Place of the Skull. Um, we don't know why John mentions this. Maybe it's just for detail, so we know it's a historical place, so that historically really happened. Um, some believe that maybe it was the Place of the Skull because maybe the stone mountains kind of look like maybe like a skull. Um, but we don't really know why, but we know where. And one of the fascinating connections between where Jesus is being crucified, um, it's in the same area where thousands of years prior to this crucifixion, Abraham took his one and only promised son, Isaac, up on the same mountain as an offering to God. And now God is doing the same thing with his one and only son. But God does not provide a sacrifice in place of his son. His son is the sacrifice. And in verse 18, we read that they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Luke's account of the crucifixion gives dialogue between Jesus and these criminals, one on his left, one on his right. Luke writes, that one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What incredible hope this should give us. I mean, here's a criminal, someone with a past, hours from his death, and Jesus forgives his sin and assures the man that he would be with him in paradise. That's amazing. I mean, from our perspective, no one is too far gone. I, I never want to hear any of us say, oh, that, that person's just too bad. They, they've, they've just done too many wicked things for God to save them. From our perspective, no one is too far gone. Jesus can save the worst of all sinners. I mean, think about it. This man never went to church. He didn't practice tithing. My, my goodness, he wasn't even baptized. This shows us that our salvation has nothing to do with what we can do for God. Several of you have probably seen this clip that I'm going to show, but it's worth showing to highlight this point. So let's watch this clip from, uh, from a sermon by a guy named Alistair Begg. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, 
what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense... I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you, were, you, were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What? What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I, I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are you, are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> The guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther said most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. Could have uh, just simply read that quote, but I, you'd miss out on the accent. My Appalachian <laughs> accent is just not nearly as cool. Um, but you, you and I make it solely because of his works, not ours. That's so important for us to grasp this morning. It's going to give you steadfastness. It's going to help you rest at night. And then next we see Pilate. He denies the Jews' request. This is so amazing. Look at verse 19. 
Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Once again, John brings out the irony here. Here the the pagan Roman governor writes accurately about Jesus, and it's the Jewish religious leaders who want him to edit the sign. Pilate denies the request, and in his sovereignty, God first causes the sign to stay exactly as Pilate had written, and then second, he fulfills four Old Testament prophecies through the Roman soldiers. Look down at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So the first fulfillment comes from Psalm 22. With Jesus in agony on the cross, they decide not to waste his clothes, and so they divide them up, one part for each soldier. Uh, The tunic was a common garment for priests. And so John may have been tying this tunic in with Jesus as a way to show that he is this great high priest. What I find just amazing is that crucifixions were a Roman death penalty. They, they were, you know, Romans had perfected this, what they would call maybe an art. Yet there are prophecies about this form of death hundreds of years before the crucifixion was ever invented or perfected by the Romans. The first crucifixion ever recorded in history was from 519 B.C. by the Persians. But these prophecies of the crucifixion date much older than that. It's just amazing to think about that God already knew what was going to happen. And then we see some contrast in the story. We have four soldiers. We know it's four because these soldiers, they, guard, they, they took parts of his clothing, one for each soldier. And then in verse 25, we're now introduced to four women. Verse 25 says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four ladies. John doesn't mention the name of Jesus' mother in this gospel. We know from the other gospels that her name is Mary. And so there are three Marys, and then Mother Mary's sister was there. So Jesus' aunt was present. Um, Mary, who's the wife of Clopas, is only mentioned here um, at the crucifixion, so we don't know anything about her or her husband. And Mary Magdalene, we we know her. She's the one that, in Luke's gospel, um, she had seven demons cast out her from Jesus. So these women, they have been around Jesus throughout his life, and now they're gathered around him at his death. And I think with the four soldiers The four women, I think John's giving us this this picture to emphasize 
the choice that the cross brings for each one of us. We either reject Jesus at the cross or follow him as these women did. And I want you to just kind of put yourself there that afternoon at the cross, watching watching Mary. I mean, just imagine, like, seeing Jesus suffering on the cross, um, and this sweet mama is watching her son, who had been beaten. Now he's being crucified. I cannot imagine what that would be like. Watching a child go through any pain, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, it's not an easy thing to do. So I cannot begin to imagine how torn Mary is. I mean, there's probably one part of her that she obviously doesn't want to watch her son die, right? But at the same time, she probably wants to be near her son as he is suffering. And as Jesus is suffering on the cross, as he is suffocating, I want you to see where his mind is. Look at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In the midst of dying for the sins of the world, having the darkest moment of his life, being forsaken by God the Father, where do we find Jesus? Caring, caring for his mom. I think the point that John is trying to make is even in the most horrific moment, we find him taking care of the needs of others. This is amazing. This is your Lord Jesus. As John said earlier in chapter 3, he's painting this picture of Jesus is actually talking to Nicodemus. He's saying that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And there's a play on words there that he's lifted up on the cross. But there's also this picture of him being lifted up, making much of. And I just want to lift him up today. My goodness. Because at the cross, Jesus gives us an example to follow. Even when we are in our deepest stress, like disappointment, suffering, we can and should still look after the needs of others. I mean, if you think about it, this would be like visiting someone on their deathbed. Maybe hospice has been called in. You walk into that room, and they look at you and say, hey, how are you? I'm so glad you stopped by today. Anything I can do for you? That's kind of what's going on here. This interaction with Mary and this disciple, um, whom traditionally is identified as John, this interaction also shows us that John was not one of the disciples who fled John stayed by Jesus until the very end. John was a good friend. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So he put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. 
and gave up his spirit. It's so interesting that his last words are, it is finished while there is still so much more to do. There's still the resurrection. There's still so much more discipling to do. Like these guys still don't quite get it. There's still much to rule and reign over. And so what does Jesus mean by finished? Well, first, it is finished means to complete a task, to see something to the end. Second, it means to accomplish, to have a sense of satisfaction, an accomplishment. He finished what his father sent him to do, which was to take away the sins of the world. This crying out should not be seen as Jesus being defeated, but rather more like a cry of victory. For those of you who've seen Braveheart, it might be like, you know, freedom, this is this cry of victory. It's done. It's over. I have fought the good fight. The price has been paid in full, complete, done. It is finished. Those three words should bring comfort for those here this morning who struggle with the idea of losing your salvation. This should bring tremendous comfort for those who believe their sin is too great for God to save. Either Jesus paid it all or he didn't. This week, many of you will be cooking this big Thanksgiving dinner. You'll work all day. In fact, maybe you've, your work's already begun by gathering all the items, ingredients you need to make Thursday happen. On Thursday, without fail, I, I know my kids will at some point come into the kitchen and, and they'll ask, you know, is it done yet? Is it done yet? And some point during the day, I will say, okay, everything is finished. What that means is there's nothing left to do. Everything has been prepared. It's time to eat and enjoy. The work of Jesus on earth, given by the Father, is finished. It's complete. There's nothing left for him to do. His work was to bring salvation to God's people. John the Baptist, whose role was to announce the coming of the Messiah, looked at Jesus and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' work as Savior is completed when he lays down his life on the cross. The sacrificial offering of his life completes his great rescue mission. It's done. It's over. And understanding that this redemption has been completed, it motivates our faith because it's the only response we have. If redemption isn't finished, then I still have something to do to earn or complete it. When we fully understand the work of salvation is complete, then we will also understand we can do nothing, absolutely nothing to earn it or to keep it. The moment you stop believing Jesus finished salvation is the moment you start working for your salvation. You begin to wonder what you need to do in order to keep God in your favor. Some of you feel that way? You know what I'm talking about? When trials come, you'll wonder if it's, if it's because of something bad that you've done. Your relationship with God will become a checklist of do's and don'ts. One author writes, if Jesus has done everything to secure your salvation, 
that you will relate to him as, a, as the child of a gracious and giving God. But if you need to do something, if his view of you is based on your performance, then that relationship of love and freedom becomes one of guilt and fear. You'll be plagued by worry and doubt about your standing with him. You'll wonder if he's happy with you today. You'll quiver in the corner of the kitchen, wondering what your father's mood will be when he returns home. So it is finished. Jesus, he's completely dead. Some would argue that he passed out from the pain. Um, you know, we see that they stabbed him with a spear. Jesus died, and now we see the hearts of the Jews exposed. Let's pick up in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the Jewish leaders, they, they did not want the bodies of the victims left up during the special Sabbath. And so they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Breaking the legs would speed up this process of suffocating because they couldn't lift up anymore. So it would speed up the death. They would die. They could take them off the cross. They could be ready for the party. There is no mercy, no compassion. You see Jesus dying on the cross, and he's still showing mercy and compassion. Now, I want us to think about when we are in pain. When you're in pain, are you thinking about others? You know, when I get sick, all I think about is me. And here Jesus is dying, and he's thinking about his mom, disciples. The Jews, all they care about was this Passover meal, the party, the hoopla. Because of the Passover, this Sabbath was a special holy Sabbath. And instead of preparing their hearts to worship, they, they, they murdered the God that they should be worshiping. So the soldiers come, verse 32. They break the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Well, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once they came out, and, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Why would John give the detail of the broken legs and pierced side? He tells us in verse 35 that you may believe. Here are two more Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, and John says that these things have been written so that you may believe in Jesus. So prophecies, that's part of what they're there for, is to help us believe. I, I remember going to Israel about 13 years ago. It's an amazing trip. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I encourage you to go. It's, it's incredible. Um, Instead of just reading scripture, you will see scripture. It's, it's just, it's amazing. 
Um, our tour guide was this Jew who grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Philly. And he said he went off, he graduated from this high school, it was mainly Jewish high school. And he um, graduated from there and went to Penn State. While um, as a freshman at Penn State on move-in day, his RA came and introduced himself. And he quickly realized that his RA was a strong evangelical Christian. So the RA noticed that this freshman was wearing a necklace with the Star of David on it and um, started, you know, said, are you, are, are you Jewish? He said, yeah. And so they started this conversation. He said the RA just befriended him, um, would grab lunch with him all, all the time, and they would just talk a lot about, about God. And um, my tour guide admitted, he said, I was Jewish, but I was basically just Jewish by name only. I didn't really know much about um, what he would call his Bible, which we'd call the Old Testament. Um, but he said this RA kept spending time with him, and he would always bring up Jesus. And so we would begin to talk about Jesus. And um, my tour guide said that um, he challenged him. He said, don't you know that Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament? He said, no, I've, I know enough to know Jesus isn't. He's at least in the New Testament. He's not in the Old Testament. So no, 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 he's, he's all throughout the Old Testament. You should just start reading your Bible, and then you come back and tell me. So he said, he, he finally, one, one evening, came home after dinner with this guy in the cafeteria, went home to his dorm, and he said he, he has a Bible there, but he had not touched his Bible, and he opened it up, and I don't encourage you just to randomly do that, um, but he just so happened to open up to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, um, first off, Isaiah sometimes, he's been called the fifth gospel. Because when you read the book of Isaiah, you just see Jesus all throughout the pages. Isaiah 53 is one of the passages that just screams Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all throughout the chapter. And so he, he says he was reading Isaiah 53 he said, I actually like went back to the table of contents just to make sure that like there wasn't like some kind of like New Testament addition to his Jewish Bible. And he said, oh, you know, I, I closed it and then he said, I, I just continued to, to read and I just kept seeing Jesus all over the pages. Um, he came across Isaiah 9. Um, for us, a child is born. And then just this picture of Jesus and he said, eventually, he said, I, I, just, I just surrendered. I knew that he was right, I was wrong. And so he um, gave his life to Christ, graduated from Penn State, moved to Israel, um, and um, devoted his life to Christ. And so he still lives, in, to my knowledge, still lives in, in Israel today and um, gives tour guides. And, um, but it was, it was the fulfillment of, of these Old Testament prophecies that pointed him to Jesus. And, and so, I know sometimes we look at the Old Testament and think, oh, I don't want to read that, it's kind of boring. Like, read it. It's, 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 it's just as inspired as the New Testament. Uh, we need to be in the Old Testament, and, and the Lord will do incredible things um, through the Old Testament. Uh, he, he will show us just how everything's just woven together. This is one big story. So I encourage you, just stay, stay in God's word, old and new. Both are, both are good. 
Now we come to the last section of the crucifixion, found in verses 38 through 42. In verse 38, John shows us, he introduces us to um, these two figures. One's new, one we've seen before. Let's pick up in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. In Mark's gospel, we read that this Joseph was a respected member of the Jewish council. He was probably pretty wealthy, too. How do we know this? Well, first, he had access to Pilate. I mean, you just can't stroll up to the governor and ask and have a conversation. So he, he asked the governor, can I, can I have the body? And so they, they must have known each other. Um, and then second, he has his own stone tomb. Um, having a stone tomb would also be a sign of wealth. So here's someone who's really important. And we read that he is a disciple of Jesus, even though he was, you know, was kind of in secret. Here he's not. I mean, he's out in the open at this point. Um, and he's probably the most prominent of all of the disciples at this point. And so Joseph asks if he could take the body. Pilate gives him permission. And then we see in verse 39 that Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus, we've seen him back in chapter 3. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was an extremely important and also a wealthy man. Verse 40, so they, Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as it is the bare customs of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. I, I know there's a, probably a play there on the garden um, of Eden, and now here's another garden. One brought death. Here's another picture of death. Also, we're going to see life. So Jesus of the Jewish day of Passover, um, the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This detail is fascinating. Do you remember when the high priest Caiaphas was bringing Jesus to Pilate's headquarters and they would not enter into his home because they would become unclean? Do you remember that? Do you know what else would make you unclean according to Jewish law? Touching something dead. But here we see Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a part of the Sanhedrin, a ruler of the Jews, touching the deceased Jesus, making him unclean and therefore not being able to participate in the Passover meal. He's willing to give up that special day for something he's found. There's a greater, a greater treasure now for Nicodemus. John's gospel never explicitly says that Nicodemus was a follower of Jesus, but his actions here sure makes it seem like he has become a follower of Jesus or is at least moving in that direction. There, there's a change here. May even a play on words that John so often does. The, the first time Nicodemus comes, he, he makes a point to say that Nicodemus came by night. And now he's coming to Jesus in the middle of the day. Saying, here I am. I love this man. I'm following him. One author writes, 
the death of Jesus is where Jesus saves, loves, looks after, redeems, restores, and rescues his followers. It's important for us to remember that we must never add anything to the completed work of Christ on the cross. What I find so many of us is that we all agree that it's that our life spiritually begins with grace, but then we live as if our Christian life continues by works. When Jesus says it is finished, we should trust him at his word and know that we make it, we arrive safely at home because the man on the middle cross says so. That's it. That's why. Not because of how much good you've done. Not because of who your mom and dad are. Or how many times you've been the church or given um, to you know, different charities. You are allowed to come because the man on the middle cross says you can come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I can't even begin. It's not, not any words that I can say um, that would demonstrate um, how thankful we are what, what you have done for us. As we have rebelled from you and walk away from you, and you have made a way for us to be right with, with God. Lord Jesus, we know that you did everything that you needed to do to give us a relationship with your Father. You lived a perfect life. You died on the cross. You rose from the, from the dead. And now you reign in heaven. And so Lord, I pray that we, would, that we would stop trying to add things to what you've done. That we wouldn't uh, belittle your cross by adding, by adding to it with our works. That we would trust that your death, that it was sufficient. And so, Lord, as you rule and reign now from heaven, I pray that you would um, give us boldness, give us steadfastness, not to waver when those doubts come. Help us to cling to the cross to know that it is finished. There's nothing else that we have to do that we just cling to you. So Lord, as we um, have those moments of doubts, I pray that you would, um, that you remind us that you're near to us, that um, just as you looked out and saw your mom, that uh, you were still caring for us. And so may that be May that be enough for us today. May we not lean on the cross and also what we do, but may we just lean on the cross. I'm going to pray all this in Christ's name.